of all the benefits of Dharma practice that were spoken about last evening, it is the realization of the unconditioned or Nibbana that is, as Deborah mentioned, the heartwood of practice. The doorway to accessing the unconditioned is through insight or through vipassana. It is by developing vipassana knowledge or insight knowledge that we prepare the mind for letting go that the letting go that realizes the unconditioned or nibbana. And so it's important to understand what vipassana really is. The Noble Eightfold Path is, as we have mentioned, essentially three trainings. The training in sila, or purity of behavior and speech, which brings its beneficial rewards. The training in samadhi or tranquility, collectedness of mind, which has its benefit and reward. And then panya, the development of wisdom through purifying our understanding. This deep, intuitive, empirical understanding called insight is essentially coming to know and to confirm and to live from the understanding of what are called the three characteristics. These are three characteristics of all phenomena that they are impermanent or anicca that they are unsatisfactory or dukkha and that they are not self or anatta. Now we know things are impermanent, seasons change, people grow up, grow old, pass away, political systems change, the economy goes up and down, our health is better or not. Change is no secret and yet we live our life trying to attain and maintain some unchanging steady health, relationship, financial condition, resting our security and happiness upon how fixed we can hold things in our life. This is not reasonable. And yet, we can't stop doing that. Not easily, I should say. We also see that this body it goes through its conditions, it goes through its life, try as we might, getting the exercises we need, 
eating our vitamins, uh, doing our aerobics, getting our annual exams, doing all the good things, still the body's got its own agenda. It is subject to conditions outside of our control and the mind too. We try to keep it happy. We want to be happy. We do everything we can to be happy and still we don't succeed all the time. This mind seems to be independent of us at times. We see this, we know this, it's no secret, and yet we still struggle. We try to make it the way we want it, this body, this mind. And so even though these three characteristics, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness of conditions, um, the impersonality of it. They're, they're, they're pretty obvious, and yet we resist, we minimize, we deny, we avoid applying these understandings to our life. Why? Well, essentially, we haven't seen deeply enough that this is the way things are. So tonight I want to speak about these three characteristics and how they come into our understanding from the practice we're doing here and the effect they can have on our life as we develop our Dharma practice. We develop awareness by stabilizing our attention. We can stabilize our attention on a single object like the breath or the posture, or we can stabilize our attention on changing experiences moment to moment. But it is the continuity of that attention that collects the mind, that stabilizes the mind, so that we see what it is that is occurring, what we're looking at, so that we see it more clearly, more accurately than a quick glimpse. We see it with penetrating vision, the mind's penetrating vision, to see into the inherent nature of this experience so that we can deeply understand and live from that understanding. When we see, or as we develop, to the extent that we develop an understanding of the three characteristics, we realign our understandings of events in life. We reframe them within the framework that includes things are impermanent, things are not self, things are or have this characteristic or quality of being unsatisfactory. When we know that, we aspire to a different goal or we aspire to move in a different direction in our life, no longer seeking that which is not going to change or is going to be satisfying or is going to be all about me. We let those go because we've seen through 
the possibility of relying on them. When we understand the three characteristics, we can practice confidently. Because this is what we will be seeing moment to moment, one or all of these characteristics. So we won't be surprised anymore. We won't be overwhelmed anymore. We won't be kind of disillusioned anymore when things are unsatisfactory, when things are ever-changing, when we can't control anything about our life. When these understandings are deeply embedded in our mind through this kind of experience, we live life fully, fully engaged with all that life offers. The only difference is we don't suffer. Anicca, which we translate as impermanence, means that this that is Anicca is subject to occur and disappear. It will turn for the worse. It is momentary. It is not permanent. That's what Anicca means. In practice, we may hear the teachings of the Buddha, all things are impermanent. But to us, having heard that, it's just an idea. It's just a concept. It's just something that's rolling around in our head that we kind of lay on top of experience or lay a filter through which we view life. It's not a direct experiential knowledge for us. It's just something we've been told, maybe believe, because of using our intelligence, we can see that it's true. But it's just a superficial film over our life. It doesn't have transformative effect. But even by thinking about the fact that things are impermanent, we can reframe our experience, we can reframe our expectations, we can make wiser choices just remembering that things are going to change. They're not going to stay the same. This, of course, allows us a lot of um, time and wisdom to come into the mind when we consider that things are going to change. Impermanence, or this truth of change, is hidden, it is said, by the massive continuity of phenomena. Impermanence is hidden from our ordinary view by the massive continuity of phenomena. On Maui, where I live, when you go to a luau, you know, this is a traditional Hawaiian uh, picnic, a cookout, so to speak, they always have some performers. And one of the performers is usually a man who does a fire dance 
and he has one or a number of torches that he you know, twirls and throws and, and does all kinds of things with. By the time he gets on the stage doing his performance, it's dark, uh, and so there's not much light. And when he lights a single torch and spins it around, it appears as if there is a circle of light. But when he stops, you see, there's no circle of light. It is only due to the massive continuity of phenomena that we perceive the circle. But in fact, there isn't one. It's just a single ball of light moving fast enough that we don't see the change. And so we are caught in believing the appearance of a circle. This happens to us all the time, not just at a luau. We take, as we often do, a momentary perception. We look in the mirror and we see this reflection and we say, that's the same thing I saw yesterday. But we've been saying that for 20 years. <laughs> but 20 years ago you didn't look like that. But day by day we don't see the change. Decade by decade, yes. Why don't we see it? Well, it's because of the massive continuity. It's just day by day. You look and it just build up kind of a, a little correction <laughs> every day. So that, did you change since yesterday? No. But we would say that for the last 50 years, or some of us, 60. We don't see the discrete moments of perception. We just kind of smear them all together, run them all together into a continuity. When in fact, there really isn't one. Our body appears to be unchanging, and yet we know intellectually all the cells in the body change every seven years or something like that, and we know that scientifically. We've had that fact in our brain, but somehow in our sense of ourself, not changing. Same with our mind. We have a thought, an image, a perception arise in the mind and we reflect on it today, tomorrow, the next day, every day for the last 10 years. And we think, well, to give an example, I was born without a patience gene. <laughs> and so patience has been my lifelong practice or I see it arise in my mind quite frequently, just the impulse to be impatient. I see it. And I see it again, and I see it again. And sometimes I get caught in it, and less more lately, which is a relief. But nevertheless, I still see the impulse in the mind to be impatient. I have taken, in the past, I have taken this momentary perception of impatience, extended it in time, and say, well, I'm always impatient. And not only that, 
I'm an impatient person. How did I do that? I just didn't notice the discrete moments of impatience. I just kind of ran them all together, created a solid entity of impatient person, constructed out of discrete momentary perceptions. We do this with everyone in our life. We do it to ourselves, with the mind, with our bodies, with other people's minds, with other people's bodies. Well, this causes a tremendous amount of suffering because I'm not always impatient, which is a relief. And the other person is not always who you thought they were, which is sometimes not a relief. We've all done things in the past that we felt guilty about. You know, we've done shameful things. We've done unskillful things. We've done things that have hurt ourselves, hurt others. Well, probably more times than we care to remember. Nevertheless, in practice, as we pay attention, we remember. And if we remember often enough, we can get locked into this guilty me and be living a lie. The you that was created 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, out of these impersonal conditions coming together when an unskillful action was performed. The you that came together and acted that out ceased to exist at that very time, at that very moment. It hasn't been living within you for the last 10, 15, 20, 30 years. And now when you remember it, still guilty after all these years. Nevertheless, that's what it feels like. I'm still guilty. I did it then. It's because we don't see the discreteness of momentary perceptions. And we just run them together. And we get identified with them. When external conditions do not affirm our internal perception, we also suffer. Years ago, I was in a relationship with a woman, and as relationships sometimes go, it went. <laughs> I didn't want it to go. I wanted it to stay. And I used to say to her, remember the way it used to be? That's the way it still is. And it wasn't. I wanted to believe that. I did believe it. And it wasn't. Until I saw, really, that was then, this is now. And, well, grieved the loss of the way it was. One of our friends, collaborators, uh, co-teachers at time, Jack Engler, has said, Vipassana practice is learning how to grieve effectively because it is one long grieving process, coming to see the fleeting, impermanent nature of everything and not hanging on.
And so it's being there for that life, being there for that moment of experience, fully tasting it, intimately feeling and knowing this is the moment. And the next moment is gone. Gone. Not hanging on. If there's a feeling of loss, feel the loss. Grieve that loss by feeling it. Be there for the next moment. It's when we don't allow ourselves to feel the loss of what has passed. Because we don't see that it's passed. If we don't see that it's passed, we don't know there has been a loss. We don't grieve the loss. And we stay entangled in some fantasy of the past that doesn't exist. Everything is impermanent. Now you see. The breath comes, the breath goes, the thought comes, the thought goes, sensation comes, sensation goes, the sitting comes, the walking comes, the sitting goes, the walking goes. Sleep comes, sleep goes, meal comes, meal goes. It... Okay, got that. <laughs> the next step, the next understanding to be seen with this understanding of impermanence is that that which is observing is also impermanent. When we see things out there being impermanent, it seems to point to the observer being permanent. I'm, I'm permanent seeing things impermanent. You're halfway there. The next half is to see also that this observing, it's just, a, it's just a verb. There's no noun there. There's no observer. From moment to moment, the observing is a different observing. This begins to really pull the rug out from underneath any sense we have of solidity, stability, longevity, and the fixity of this sense of me. It's, it's destabilizing. It kind of rattles your cage a little bit. But when we can see and open to this understanding, it is very liberating. It is so freeing not to have to maintain this sense of yourself all the time. The Buddha says, do not revive the past. Do not build hopes on the future. The past has been left behind and the future has not yet arrived. Instead, see with insight each presently arisen state. Know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow, death may come, who knows. There's no bargain you can make with mortality that can keep mortality away. This insight into impermanence is so powerful. I don't have the quote exactly, but let me paraphrase the Buddha. Is it something like, better than a life of 
total loving kindness to everyone all the time, or a life of impeccable uh, ethical conduct, or a life of deep concentration in samadhi. Better than all that is a single moment, single moment of seeing impermanence. Why? Because when we see impermanence, we see there really is nothing to hold on to. And there really is no one to hold on. This is so freeing. I mean, sometimes when we hear it, we think, I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I want to go there. Experientially, it's liberating. Conceptually, it may be confusing and paradoxical. It may feel... But it creates so much spaciousness in the mind that things can come and go in your life without there being this getting stuck in holding on to what no longer exists, whether it's in the past or imagining it in the future. And when we can learn to let go through seeing truly that it is all impermanent, liberation is possible. The second characteristic is dukkha. Ordinarily, in our life, we run on a hedonic treadmill, looking for, seeking, trying to acquire as much pleasure as we can get. Sensual pleasure, social pleasure, spiritual pleasure, interpersonal pleasure, as much pleasure in any possible way that we can get. We like comfort, we like convenience, we like good health, we like security, we like status, we like recognition, we like stuff. We've been doing this for a long time. We've gotten everything we've wanted over and over and over again. Are we there yet? Pleasure does not bring happiness. No amount of pleasure can be piled up, accumulated, to provide the happiness, the security, the stability that we seek. It's just not possible. Even in Dharma practice, we come looking for pleasure. We want good sittings, we want pain-free sittings, we want continuity of mindfulness, we want clarity, we want bliss, we want anything it indicates you're on the road to happiness. This is called samsara. Samsara is looking for happiness in all the wrong places. And if you understand what samsara is, and I don't have time to give you a whole map, Every plane of existence has its pleasures, whether you're in the human realm, or the heavenly realms, or the deva realms, or the brahma realms, or whatever, looking for happiness, looking for pleasure. And it's exquisite, even, even in the human realm, there's exquisite pleasures, and yet it's not satisfying. Momentarily, yes. 
enduringly? No. Dukkha, or the characteristic of dukkha, means to see that something is painful. There are some things, some experiences that are painful. There's physical pain, we know that. You know, aches, pains, you sit too long, you get stiff, you get hot, you get cold, you get hungry, you get too full, you get, you know, after waking up, you're kind of creaky. Well, some of us are. <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, you're really exhausted. Painful. That's dukkha. Emotionally or mentally painful. Sometimes we feel fear, sometimes we feel anxiety, we feel panic, we feel ashamed, we feel vulnerable. Also painful. That's dukkha. This kind of dukkha, the obvious physical, the obvious mental, obvious emotional pain, is called dukkha dukkha. It's obvious. Everybody experiences it at some time, at some point, and maybe more frequently in their life. Now, why did the Buddha think that was important? That's pretty obvious. Well, it is obvious to us. But actually, most of us only see our own dukkha. We see my physical pain, my mental pain, my emotional pain, and we think there's something wrong with me. You know, if I was good enough, I wouldn't have to experience this. The Buddha said everyone experiences this dukkha dukkha. All beings experience this. We miss the significance of what the Buddha is saying, what the Buddha is teaching, because we personalize our dukkha. My dukkha. My pain. My insecurity. My vulnerability. My fear. My anxiety. There's another meaning, or another element, to dukkha. And it is the experience that comes to our heart, to our mind, because things change. Because of change. And because things change, really, there's nothing that is reliable as a foundation or a basis for our happiness. Anything that changes that we're relying on can change. Pleasant conditions are unreliable because they change. They come to an end. Now, we're not saying that pleasant is painful. We're saying pleasant is dukkha because it doesn't last. So when you look at your life and you look at what we have acquired what we have accumulated and what we're holding on to, hoping that it doesn't change, you'll see how unreliable that is. We have relationships, we have careers, we have bank accounts, we have cars, houses, we insure it, we elect the people we want sometimes. We do everything we can to create security and we know in a minute, a split second, it can all change. Any one of us can go to the doctor tomorrow, next day, when we go home, and get a diagnosis, change your life. Can't prevent it. Things change. Right now, you might be in good health. Right now, well, right then, a couple of years ago, a lot of us had what we thought was 
financial security. <laughs> Things change. Can't stop it. The happiness and the comfort, the contentment, the joy, the stillness, the tranquility of some time during this retreat, during one of those sittings, where did it go? It's gone. Can't rely on it. It doesn't mean that the experience of it is bad, the experience of it is painful. It's that it's not reliable. We all know this somewhere, not too far below the surface. But we do everything we can to avoid it, to deny it, to minimize it, to cover it up, to, to not have to experience it, because insecurity feels yucky. But it's hovering right there, just on the periphery of our vision. Insight practice asks us to bring it into focus, take a look at this that we're trying to do, and let it go. Realize that it's not possible to do that. There's a third element to dukkha, and it has two pieces. There's the macro view and the micro view. And the macro view is we're born, our parents and other caregivers doing the best they can, care for us, they bathe us, they feed us, they clothe us, they love us, they educate us, they coo us, they cuddle us, they do what they can for as long as they can stand it. <laughs> and then some. So that we'll be happy. And after, and slowly, after a few years, you know, they get their, your siblings or friends or other people or teachers to take over the, some of the job. And after, you know, 14, 15, 18 years, they finally convince you you're on your own. Now you have to do that. You have to take care of this mind and you have to take care of this body. So to take care of the body, you've got to bathe it every day. You've got to groom it, you've got to make it look good. You've got to clothe it, you've got to get some rest. You've got to get some exercise so you stay healthy. And in order to eat, you've got to earn some money. You've got to have the food. To get the money, you've got to have a job. To get the job, you need an education. You should go to school for 16 years. There's some dukkha. <laughs> And then you got this mind. Now the mind needs to be entertained. It needs to be distracted. It needs to be busy. It needs to be preoccupied. You got to keep it occupied or it'll get bored. It'll get disappointed. It'll get frustrated. It'll get anxious. It'll get fearful. It'll just get, well, it'll drive you crazy. Right? You know, if you don't keep this mind entertained, it's like being on a retreat your whole life. <laughs> It is. That, that's some dukkha. Okay, now you've got this mind, you've got this body, and you've got to do this, you've got to take care of it for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, some of us, eight decades. Decades. Every day, 24-7. Decades. At the end of which, what happened? In a little box, all prettied up into a hole in the ground, covered up, over. All that time, all that energy, all that information, all that money, everything you've invested in this body and mind, gone. Bad investment. 
<laughs> I mean, it's a good thing we can laugh about it because it's true. <laughs> okay, if that's all we're doing with our life is carrying this body and mind as, as happily as we can to the grave, well, let me be quite honest, we're wasting our time. We can do so much better. We can wake up to what we're doing, what is going on in this process, and free ourselves from it through practice, through deeply understanding this is the way it is. How do you get out of this circle, this cycle of just endlessly doing this? The Dharma has the key. That's the macro view. The micro view is a little less, but almost as bad. <laughs> We're born and we have eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind. Six sense doors. The mind is considered a sense door in, in Buddhist understanding. They are constantly being stimulated all the time. Constant stimulation. We're constantly feeling tactile sensations in the body. We're constantly seeing, even when your eyes are closed, we can play movies. Or hearing sounds, even when you're in a silent place. Old concerts, old records just kind of play through the mind. We are incessantly barraged with sensory stimulation, especially our mind. As uh, Trungpa Rinpoche said, our mind is like a traffic jam of discursive thoughts. It is. Our mind is just so full of thinking, constant stimulation, and we can't stop it. <laughs> We're just kind of like, just kind of like victimized by. Where did this come from? Who invited this hell upon us? I mean, it's just constant stimulation. Sure, some of it's pleasant, but when you really want to get away, get, get some relief, kind of turn, turn the volume down, most of us, before practice, cannot. And with practice, we still see we, can, we cannot, or not at will. This is oppressive, to be honest. This is oppressive. It's hard to get it, though, because what's the option? <laughs> Is there any option? What other choice do we have? Well, the choice is to practice, to come to understand this is the way it is. This is the way it is. The understanding of dukkha, of the dukkha characteristic, that all phenomena has this characteristic of dukkha. It's either painful or it's changeable and therefore keeps us insecure, or it's oppressive in its constant stimulation. When you realize this about all phenomena, you don't hang on to anything. You just let go. Whatever arises in any moment, you just let go. You experience it, you taste it, you're, you're fully in, involved in life, but you just don't hang on. In this way, there's momentary liberation, moment by moment by moment. But it's because we understand this characteristic of dukkha. Not because we're wallowing in it, or caught by it, or oppressed by it, but because we understand it. We accept this is the way it is. 
It is said that dukkha is hidden by continually changing your bodily posture. Keep moving, don't notice. Don't notice what it's really like. So when you come in, you sit down, and you sit still for 20 minutes, and you pay attention, nobody has to look any further than that to know what dukkha is. It's so obvious. This body is, well, and yet, our conditioning is you look at people, you look at athletes, you look at other people and you think, God, they got it made. Not if they sit still and pay attention. Anyone who sits still and pay attention is going to come to an immediate empirical recognition of dukkha. And then you just keep moving. And we keep moving throughout life just trying to keep one step ahead of the truth. So when the Buddha says the first noble truth of dukkha is to be investigated, he means take a look. Just look really closely. Don't, don't flinch from seeing this is the way it is. Because if you really see this is the way it is, you'll do something about it. If you don't see it, you'll, you'll, you'll keep moving. Keep avoiding. But if you really see this is the way it is, then you're going to want to do something about it. You'll look, you'll search for what you can do about it. As we develop our practice, our insight practice, and the understanding of impermanence, the understanding of dukkha, and the understanding of not-self matures, gradually These understandings are so uh, apparent and we stop resisting this understanding that the mind actually becomes very balanced, very refined, not reacting to anything. This is, well, in ordinary language, as good as it gets. To have a mind that is engaged, but not entangled in anything, balanced. <laughs> Many of you know that on Maui we have been uh, building a, a small Dharma sanctuary, and for many years we were um, working with our neighbors to improve the county water system to our land in order to have a better water supply so that we could get building permits for the buildings we want to build. Well, let me just kind of finish the story. We got our water meter this summer. Yeah, yeah cool. Okay, 12 years, million plus dollars, got it. Okay, but before that happened, <laughs> In the midst of it, when I saw the price just escalating beyond anything we'd imagined, I was just kind of overwhelmed. I, I called up the deputy director of the water department and said, can I have a meeting with you? I'd like to talk about how we could possibly get the cost of this thing down to where we can afford it. He said, sure, come on in. So I went in and um, he and two or three engineers and another 
official of the department, there was four or five of them were there, and I came in with my list of ideas of how we could reduce the cost of this project to us. So I said, here, I'd like you to hand them all out a, a copy of what I wanted to talk about. And I got to the first one, I said, you know, you've asked us to build a 10,000 gallon water tank. We don't need 10,000 gallons, how about a 1,000 gallon? This would reduce our cost by, you know, $150,000. And they discussed it for four or five minutes, looked in the, the book and came out with section, you know, 2.78351. Uh, no, you need a 10,000 gallon tank. I said, oh, okay. Well, how about reducing the eight inch pipe to six inch pipe? Nobody's ever gonna use any more water than can go through a six inch pipe. You know, and it's, you know, that would save us $50,000. And they had another discussion about the size of pipe, looked in their reference manuals, came back with the answer, no, that's not gonna be possible. We need the eight inch pipe, okay. How about reducing, you know, these pressure relief valves? You know, they cost about $70,000 a piece. We've got three of them in the ground. Can't we get by with just two, save ourselves $70,000? They had a discussion, talked about how much elevation drop there was between where we start and where we finish. No, that's not gonna be possible. And after a couple more of these, the deputy director looked at me and he said, you're old enough to know, and you don't need me to remind you, life's unfair. <laughs> okay. Lucky I'd been practicing for three decades. <laughs> I could see my mind just roll, just scroll through. You son of a... The indignation, the anger, the rage, the humiliation, the how am I going to respond to this guy? What a prick. It's just... And I'm just sitting there, you know, in front of all these other guys. I was like... Luckily my mind came up with this. Well, this is the way it is. And the corollary of that is, it can be dealt with. End of reaction. I didn't make things worse, at least saying something that I would regret for the next decade. But because Practice allowed me to just feel that unpleasantness and know it, just like, this is really unpleasant, this is really painful, this is really not nice, this is as bad as it gets. And that's the way it is. The understanding, you know, it's not like I th had to think it out, it's like the understanding of accepting this is the way it is, is it can be dealt with. The corollary of accepting the way it is, you can deal with it. This is freedom. This is, this frees you from so much reactivity, so much struggle with the way things are, by just seeing this is the way it is. The anatta characteristic, the bugaboo of the Buddhist teachings. <laughs> You know, because it seems to be so difficult, this not-self characteristic. Ordinarily, we think within this package of this mind and this body 
is me. Sure seems like it. I've been here as long as I can remember. Even though the mind's changing, the body's changing, I'm still here. I'm not changing. Everything else is changing. There feels like there's someone in here to whom it's all happening. We aggregate all of the physical experiences, all the mental experiences together into a unified whole and call it me. Now, let me be quite honest. It is useful to have a coherent sense of yourself in the world. You don't want to mix yourself up with your neighbor, or your mother, or your father, or your boss. You don't want to get mixed up. You want to know what your feelings are, where your boundaries are, and you want to be really clear about that. But you also want to see, this is just a useful idea that is not reflected in actual experience. It does create a solid, conceptual, form, entity to which we have a name. Steve, Betty, Deborah, whatever. And there is a recognizable pattern of appearance in front of the mirror, in front of each other, of behavior, personality. It's all recognizable as there's, there's, it's, it's pretty, pretty familiar. But underneath that appearance of sameness and familiarity and unchangingness is just a cauldron of fluxing physical and mental emotional stuff. There's no one thing there that doesn't change. This sense of self that we create, or that is created by gluing it all together, so to speak, is useful. But it also suffers. When, as I mentioned, our sense of self is not confirmed by others, we suffer. I think I'm a teacher here. When you don't treat me as a teacher, I get a little bit like confused. When you're in a relationship with someone and then that relationship comes to an end, your sense of yourself is, well, changed. You're no longer who you thought you were. You're still who you were. But your sense of yourself is, takes a hit, and we suffer. Because the conjunction of conditions that come together to hold us in place, to hold our sense of self in place, is vast. But it's fluxing and changing all the time. Normally, we can adapt. You know, we can adapt on a day-to-day -day basis to the, to the, the subtle and, and slight changes that happen. But when big changes happen, our sense of self really just dissolves and we suffer. We lose a sense of ourself. It takes heavy editing to hold a sense of ourself in place in spite of the inevitable changes that we're going through. We have to just deny so much change that we see happening within us, around us, between us, among us, in order to hold a solid sense of ourself from day to day, year to year. 
We do it, but at a heavy cost. The Buddha said, this wrong view of personality, belief, has everywhere and at all times most misled and deluded humankind. It is this belief that has most misled and deluded each one of us in the entirety of humankind throughout history. The Buddha's teaching on the anatta characteristic is unique to the Buddha. It's not found in any other um, philosophy or religion or psychological system. It is unique to the Buddha. It is subtle. It's very difficult to understand. It is elusive to confirm experientially because the habit of identifying with experience is so strong. Nevertheless, it's important that you hear the teaching on not-self, that you hear about this understanding so that when your practice is mature enough to see it, that you will begin to confirm for yourself, ah, this is the way it is. This whole package, mind-body stuff that is unfolding here is due to impersonal conditions, a vast network of conditions that we can't control. It just happens. When we're identified with it, it feels like me and I'm suffering. When we're not identified with it, we see that it's conditional and we don't suffer. The not-self characteristic is obscured and is invisible because things are compacted. Things are aggregated. It's as if we glue together all that we see, all that we hear, all that we smell, feel, taste, touch, and think. We glue it together with identification and mold it into me, you, roles, relationships. Mindfulness is the solvent of that glue. When you pour mindfulness over that solid sense of self, it slowly loosens the glue of identification and we begin to see the pixelated view of who we really are. You know the pixels on your TV screen? They're just little dots. But when you watch that computer screen or TV screen, it really looks like there's something going on there besides just colored dots. Because we kind of glue it all together, mush it all together, don't distinguish one dot from another, and we see the aggregate. We do the same thing with ourselves. We glue it all together, all these little dots of, you know, feelings, thoughts, sensations in the body, memories, plans, ideas, concepts. We glue it all together into a me. Practice is to, for the mindfulness, take a look at the pixelated view, the, the mm, disaggregated view of this mind and body. And then we see how spacious 
the mind is when it's not identified with any one or all of these things. It is this spaciousness of mind, a result of mindfulness, that is so freeing, that frees us from the contracted, reactive, protective, defensive sense of self that gets hurt, that gets fearful, that gets abused, that gets... And when there's that awareness of the pixelatedness of life and the spaciousness around it, we don't suffer. Things still happen. The, un, the impersonal conditions are still unfolding, but we don't suffer. Years ago, when I was, after I'd been teaching for a few years, I had acquired a lot of miles on United Airlines frequent flyer program. At that time, I'm not sure if I was premier, premier executive, but nevertheless, one night when I had to fly from San Francisco to Boston in the morning, I really wanted to get there a day early. So I called up the airport and said, is there any room to fly standby on this flight from San Francisco to Boston? They said, oh yeah, planes two thirds empty. I said, great. I'm going to come down and fly standby. Packed up, got to the airport, went into the ticket counter to, to, to get my standby ticket. This is before you, when you could go standby uh, through, the, through the security. And uh, it was pandemonium. It was just like hundreds of people around. I got to the, finally got to the counter. I said, what's up? And they said, oh, one of our flights to Boston got canceled. Everybody's trying to get on the flight that I wanted to get on. And I said, yeah, but I wanted to fly standby on that flight. And they said, not a chance, bummer. But I'm a frequent flyer. Uh, could I try to stand, fly standby? They said, well, you can try. Here's your, here's your standby thing. Go up to the gate. After they've loaded everybody, if there's any seats left, maybe you can get on. Went up to the, uh, went up to the gate Went up to the gate and, and talked to the people and said, oh yeah, I want to fly standby. It was pandemonium up there too. And they said, oh, there's, there's, there's other people that want to fly standby, but just, just wait. After everybody gets on, I said, I'm a frequent flyer. I'm, I'm a premier frequent flyer. If there's one seat on that plane, I'd like to have that seat. They said, okay. So they got everybody on the plane. They was calling them on. We want to leave on time. Got them all on the plane. And they took the three of us who wanted to fly standby down the gang, you know, down the little entry thing to the door of the plane while they're trying to get everybody to sit down. They say, sit down, sit down. You know, everybody, we want to push off in time. They finally get everybody to sit down. They had one seat. Ah, I'm a frequent flyer. Can I get the seat? They said, okay, okay, you can get on. So I got on the plane. Oh, what a relief. I'm going to get to Boston on time to do what I had to do. Sat down way out back. Sat down between these two great big guys. Must have been football players. They took up my seat too. But nevertheless, I was there. No room overhead for luggage. It was under my feet. Really uncomfortable, but ah, I was going to get to Boston on time. Okay. While I'm just settling in, trying to, trying to fit in, they found another seat you know, over there. So the second person, come on. They set them down in that seat. Said, oh, that's good. Okay. Close the door of the plane. They're about to push off. They said, this is a final destination check. We're going to Boston. Somebody in first class says, wait, I'm not going to Boston. <laughs> they get up. Well, they open the door. The guy from first class gets out, leaves the plane, 
they said to the other person who wanted to fly standby, hey you, come here, come here. You can sit here in this first class seat. Ding, 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 ding. I'm a frequent flyer, I'm a premier, I'm a premier executive. Hey, hello, hello, can I have that seat? We're trying to leave on time, you've got a seat, sit down. I was frothing, I was so, well, they weren't respecting my role as a frequent flyer on their airplane. <laughs> so the first half hour of that flight, I was composing my letter to, to United Frequent Flyer Program, telling them how abusive they are and how bad they're treating me at one of their premier, or premier executive frequent flyer. And I was so angry, I was, at some point I realized, you know what? If I fly to Boston six hours like this, I'm gonna be a wreck. I better, well, I better practice mindfulness. <laughs> so I just said, okay, what's going on? Sitting, feeling hot, feeling irritated, noticing this, thinking, disappointed, angry. And after a few minutes, it was just, just sitting, just being here, happy to be on the plane. Okay. Got to Boston, no problem. Not upset, didn't send the letter. Still a frequent flyer, still a premier. <laughs> Still a premier executive. What happened? Well, as long as I was holding on to my sense of myself, by repeating the story, I'm a frequent flyer, I was suffering. But as soon as I stopped telling myself the story of my suffering and just paid attention to the actual experience, it was like, no suffering, still a frequent flyer. The only thing that happens when you let go of yourself, when you let go of your sense of yourself, when you see through this appearance and you really understand the not-self characteristic, the only thing that happens differently, you stop suffering. Just stop suffering. I still fly, still frequent flyer. Every, not, nothing is so different. I just don't tell myself that story, that story of my suffering anymore. I have a question for you. What story have you been telling yourself today that causes you suffering? It is just a story. No matter how long you've told it, no matter how bad it is, no matter how justified, no matter how rationalized, it's just a story. If you see it as just a story, you can stop suffering. That's how powerful Vipassana insight is. When you see that things change and you don't resist it, when you things see that things are dukkha or unsatisfactory and you don't pretend otherwise, and when you see through this illusion of a me suffering, 
Let's sit for a moment. Let the words quiet down.